Did you know that in Australia, there are over 200 ETFs with over $60 billion invested? In today's episode, we chat with the co-founder of BetaShares who manage over $10.5 billion. Today's episode is sponsored by Zip Medical, Australia's fastest growing and multi-award winning medical recruitment company. Why not supplement your income with locum opportunities across Australia? Whether you're a junior doctor, a newly qualified specialist, or semi-retired, Zip has locum and permanent work throughout the public and private sector. Partnering with your Zip consultant, you're empowered to make employment decisions that will help you meet your financial goals. Go to zipmedical.com.au to view all the locum and permanent jobs currently available. That's zeepmedical.com.au. Hey, this is Andrew and the Medical Money Podcast, where we share tips to help doctors earn, grow, and protect their money. Please hit subscribe and share the love with your colleagues. If you have a topic you'd like discussed or feedback to share, send an email to andrew at medicalmoney.com. Today, my guest is Ilan Israelstam. Shortly after the global financial crisis, in 2009, he co-founded BetaShares. In just 10 short years, they have become one of Australia's leading ETF managers. BetaShares' goal is to provide intelligent investment solutions that helps Australian investors meet their financial objectives. In this interview, we chat to Ilan about his background, dig deep into the world of popular and exotic ETFs, and then get him to critique some listener ETF ideas. This podcast is not financial advice, and all opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own. Please seek professional advice before making any financial or investment decision. All right. Good afternoon, Ilan. Thanks so much for joining us today. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Lovely to be on your show, Andrew. In the last couple of months, we've obviously seen a uh, correction. What have you seen uh, investors doing with their money during this time? Oh, look, at this point, there's investors doing everything and nothing, I guess. So there's a huge amount of variation in the way in which people are investing their money right now. I think in the main, what we've seen is, is largely people either trying to take a view on the market going down quite specifically, so actually taking a you know an active view on the market falling, or... Uh, actually people buying the dip, essentially buying equities largely uh, in order to to sort of get what they think is high-quality high value in the share market. Um, you know, particularly in the Australian share space, we've seen a lot of that. And uh, what we have seen people selling out of has been fixed income. So fixed income has been the thing that people have been selling. Equities is the thing that people have been buying. And then, as I said, you've got that quite large pocket of people looking to actually take a view or protect their portfolio on the market decline. Interesting. So you're saying a shift out of fixed income. Is that because the returns are lower or do you think it's kind of time to go risk on that people are uh, putting it more into act or you know things that have got higher upside potential? Yeah, I think it comes down to people's view on the risk and return at the moment. So I think obviously the risk in shares is far higher than the risk in fixed income or bonds. But at the end of the day, they believe the return profile is is going to be better over the you know over the medium term, and so you know where bonds are today are, are to those to those people less attractive than the risk return profile that come from shares. Yeah, ideally we'd all have a crystal ball, but uh, I think we're so early into this. It's going to be interesting to see how it actually plays out over the next uh, six to eighteen or twenty four months. Completely. Um, 
Today, I'd like to cover a couple of general ETF concepts and discuss some of the ETFs offered by BetaShares. Listeners also have given me some interesting ETF ideas that I'd like to pitch to you as well later on. But let's kick off by beginning with uh, maybe you sharing with us your story. What was the career pathway that you took before co-founding BetaShares? Yeah, so look, like many Australians, I was a migrant. So I moved here at the beginning of high school after growing up in South Africa. And we actually did a couple of moves between eventually between South Africa and eventually settling down here in Sydney. So me and my whole a nuclear family moved as a family from, from South Africa through to England, London, and then into, into Sydney. And um, from a young age, though, I was always involved in entrepreneurial pursuits. I remember pretty well you know, some of the things we used to do as a family, uh, particularly with my brother. I've got a younger brother and we used to get together and do things like so we used to make homemade sherbet. I remember randomly we, had, we made homemade sherbet and we sent, we went door to door and started selling it to our neighbors. We created a, a little golf course in our backyard and charged our neighborhood people to come and play. So I have always had an entrepreneurial, I guess, passion and it almost definitely has come from from being an immigrant. I think, you know, anyone who's an immigrant would be aware what, you know, their parents give up to move from their homeland to another land. And essentially it all comes back to, you know, psychology. You know, they've moved to provide us a better future. Uh, and that gives you a passion to build something and a, and a kind of rebelliousness that you need in order to be an entrepreneur. Um, and that definitely derived from, from that. So anyway, I went to uh, high school here in Sydney and uh, – I went to university at the University of New South Wales, and I spent some time in management consulting, um, a really good firm called the Boston Consulting Group. Actually, there's a number of medical doctors who end up joining that firm. Um, it's a, one of the world's leading strategy consulting firms. They basically consult to some of the world's largest company CEOs on on all sorts of things: growth strategy, cost you know cost reduction strategies, international expansion. So excellent training ground. Um, in many ways viewed as an extension of my education uh, and had a lot of great times. I ended up living in New York with them and, and largely doing a lot of work in the financial services and private equity space. But after about five and a half years, um, that entrepreneurial itch that I referred to before really got the better of me and I decided to go out and, and start a business. So I left the BCG and um, decided to jump right into the deep end you know, to give myself I guess a challenge as one does. And I actually moved to China. Um, I went to China because I thought that China was an incredibly interesting space. I mean, it still is a very interesting country. You know, at that time, you know, there was still a lot more growth to come and there still is. And I moved there without much knowledge of the language and decided to set, start setting up a business. Ended up setting up something in the advertising space. Uh, really, these were these digital billboards that you see all over the place. Uh, was an emerging big theme in China. So we raised a decent amount of capital for that business and I ended up with a, about 40 to 50 staff um, and uh, it was a great experience building that business. But in the end, I got hit by the global financial crisis uh, when I needed to do another capital raise. At this point, it was a much larger capital raise. The global financial crisis was just about to hit and I remember quite vividly having an investor pull out on me at the last minute, which ended up stymieing the growth of the business going forward. We still kept it limping along, but it never had that same gusto behind it. So it was an amazing experience, um, challenging experience, but a really quite lonely experience. I was doing it myself in China with, you know, my family back at home and, you know, 40 Chinese speaking staff with only quite limited Mandarin skills. So I decided to come back and I definitely wanted to make sure that I remained entrepreneurial, but at this point I wanted to do it with partners. 
So I connected up with some of my friends um, from uni uh, at a business called Apex Capital. Um, and Apex Capital is, is still a business I'm involved in, uh, which is essentially a company that partners with early stage companies to help them grow by, by providing financial capital as well as intellectual capital know-how network. So it's essentially a venture capital firm. It focuses primarily in the world of financial services. So one of the big things we do in, in you know, had been doing um, in Apex Capital has actually been to uh, set up companies ourselves. And BetaShares was a company that we set up ourselves, uh, the people involved in Apex Capital set up ourselves as a startup uh, back in about 2009. So it's been over 10 years now. And so that was the, um, the genesis of my, my story. And just onto beta shares itself, I mean, that the timing, as you would sort of be aware, based on what I just said, it actually rose out of the ashes of the global financial crisis. And you would think, well, that would be a terrible time to start a business. But as we're seeing now in this COVID-19 scenario, sometimes the very best ideas and the very best businesses come out of crises. And so in, in the case of beta shares, what we had worked out you know, we had been spending a lot of time in financial services. We had a fair bit of knowledge on, on funds management. And what we had worked out is that the global financial crisis had caused a real change or accelerated a change in the way people were thinking about investing. A very strong focus on fees more so than ever before. A very strong focus on the performance of fund managers because truth be told, many, many investors who had trusted their fund managers, in those cases, the active fund managers to protect them during things like the GFC did not receive what they expected. And they ultimately lost a whole lot of money where they had hoped that the fund manager would protect them. So in many ways, the global financial crisis was probably the very best thing that could have happened to the to the to kickstart the growth and the ETF industry in our view. The ETF industry in Australia, and we'll talk about ETFs, I know, was a very small industry by the time we launched beta shares. Um, but we had seen the tremendous rise in ETFs in the world more globally, and particularly in the US. And so we thought to ourselves, well, this is going to happen in Australia, and we want to be a part of it. Uh, we knew we were going to be up against large competitors, but we felt that a specialist provider of ETFs with an Australian focus uh, with our networks and know-how would be a decent competitor. So we kicked things off for the, for the first fund in, in December of 2010. And that's that's really the journey of, of beta shares. Uh, oh, wow! So six months, and then you'll be uh, your ten year anniversary at the end of the year. You got it exactly right. Yeah, so exciting was, times. Yeah, and so you've become one of the largest providers of uh, ETFs now in Australia. I've wondered with the name, how did you come up with the name? Why not Alpha Shares? <laughs> well, I guess that's the whole point, isn't it? So in in, in funds in in the world of finance, beta is the performance of the market. Alpha is the outperformance of a market, and essentially we. Call the thing beta shares because one, they, they are bought and sold like shares. So that's the shares part. And the beta is that the vast majority of our products are giving people exposure to the market um, under the view that in the end, very few people can even beat the market. Those who would be familiar with Warren Buffett has recently been talking. Even the very most famous active managers believe that in the end, net net, just buying the market is largely better than trying to beat the market. So so that's beta shares. And yeah, just to finalize it all, we, we now manage about 62 different products. We've got over $10.5 billion in assets in across those 62 products. And we've probably got well over 200, 250,000 investors um, in those funds. 
Wow. So the the amount of money that uh, invested, I was looking recently, it's something like $5.3 trillion in the US. Uh, and there's that big inflection upwards that you've uh, you mentioned post-GFC. Is it, is it really the fees thing? Is, and, you know, beta, you said, is really, you know, going with the market, buying the whole haystack, and then really you're just watching the fees that you're paying because that's what people were, uh, were burning a lot of cash on, weren't they paying heftily for fund managers to actively monitor their money? I think it's fees. Um, definitely a big part of it. It's also the ease of access. You know, the fact that you can buy and sell it like a share. There's no paperwork to fill out. I mean, I'm sure a lot of your your listeners, they don't want to, when they want to invest, they don't want to fill out a form or provide it if they're doing it inside their self-managed super fund or if they're doing it in their own back. They don't want to send paper in there. Here, you just buy and sell it like a share. And that means that you can buy it anytime you want. You can also sell it anytime you want. There's no minimum investment. Um, it's It's really in the end, just an evolution, just like everything. You know, Spotify evolved the way in which we listen to music and Netflix has evolved the way in which we watch television and there's many, many more we can keep going on. I'm sure in the medical field there's, you know, the use of robots, et cetera. I mean, the evolution in funds management and in investing is is the ETF. It's a wrapper. So it is, it's not only the fees, it's also the wrapper itself that, that houses those investments is in the end a more evolved structure that is for most people cheaper it's faster and it's better and the things that are cheaper faster and better you know refer back to netflix refer back to you know the other things we've spoken about end up doing very well yeah it's kind of the new economy but i think the other benefit is that uh Compared to you know going into managed funds, people can kind of microdose into ETFs to get their confidence, but also build their position over time. And there's not this big you know five figure entry point where for early investors or even people just starting to learn how to put their money into the markets, they don't have to feel like oh this is a huge chunk that they're taking out of their um, offset account or something. They can just start with the five hundred dollars exactly uh, to, to get in. And now a quick word from our sponsor, ShareSite. ShareSite is the simplest way to monitor and manage your share portfolio. I discovered ShareSite in 2019. It was like being gifted with another set of eyes and my own personal portfolio accountant. ShareSite automatically calculates capital gains, dividends, and franking credits. It even automates brokerage, dividend reinvestment, share splits, and exchange rates for my overseas holdings. You can try ShareSite for free and manage your portfolio of up to 10 shares. As a valued listener of my podcast, I've twisted their arm to get you two months free access if you decide to upgrade to their premium features with an annual subscription. Visit this link, medicalmoney.com slash ShareSite. That's S-H-A-R-E-S-I-G-H-T to get started and say goodbye to spreadsheets forever. Well, that leads us nicely into um, talking about ETFs in a bit more detail. Can you please explain to us what is an ETF just for the uh, the newer investor listeners that I have? Absolutely, of course. So, ETF stands for Exchange Traded Fund. So it is a fund. You you would likely be familiar with a fund. So a fund is something that houses a bunch of assets in one structure. So that means it's typically owning more than one thing at a time. So it's a fund. It's exchange traded. That means it trades on a stock exchange like the ASX. So it is bought and sold like a share and it is liquid, means you can buy and sell at any time. And um, the best example, the way to really explain it to somebody who doesn't know it is really, as I often find, is to give an example. And so let's assume that you decided that now was a good time to enter the share market. It's been beaten up a bit due to the virus scenario, and it's time to buy shares. You look at the share list online or in the newspaper and you say, well, what am I actually going to do? Am I going to buy the big banks? I'm going to buy CSL. Am I going to buy 
ASX itself as, a, as an investment? Am I going to look at uh, what, what area should I look at? BHP, should I buy Rio Tinto? The ETF allows you to buy the market. So it will buy all the stocks that ultimately make up that index. In this case, I'm giving the example of the Australia 200 index, the largest 200 stocks. So an investor in an ETF can go ahead and buy the market in a single trade. And what it will mean is that they will be able to buy it like a share, get exposure to those 200 stocks in a single trade, and then get the performance of that share market or index via that trade. And for many people, that's a very good way to start investing. And as I mentioned before, it's cost effective because there's no star manager picking the stocks. It's easy to access. It's completely transparent. People know exactly what's in it at any given time, and it's liquid. You can buy and sell it anytime you want, and you'll get the money back in your account in two days um, when, when you sell it. So it's probably one of the fastest growing industries globally in, in the world of wealth management. As you mentioned, there's over $5 trillion US. I think there's over 7,000 funds, but it's still growing very, very fast. And um, the Australian market is about $60 billion in size. Uh, but no, when we started about 10 years ago, it was only $5 billion. So it's growing at about 30% a year. And there's over 200 ETFs now in the Australian market. Wow. And so with the BetaShares ETFs, are they open-ended? And can you explain what this means? Yeah, so open-ended is a really important feature of ETFs. So the BetaShares ETFs are open-ended, and indeed all ETFs on the Australian Stock Exchange are open-ended. Open-ended means that the number of units, we call them units, but people might think about them as shares, will change according to supply and demand. So the best way to, 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 to describe that is a comparison to, for example, a share. So with a share, you'd probably know that the more people that want to buy a share, the higher the price is. The less people that want to buy it and the more people that want to sell it, the lower the price is. So the same is not true of ETFs. What it means, because it's open-ended, it means that the price of the ETF is driven by the underlying performance of what the ETF is holding as opposed to anything else like demand and supply. So what that does is it means that the ETF will typically trade very near their fair value because um, it's easy for people to know what the fair value of the exposures are. So there'll always be competition for buyers and sellers from professional firms um, such as market makers, which means that you'll always be able to trade it at near the fair value. And the price is not dependent upon how many people are interested in that theme. It's just dependent on the ETF. So that is very different to things like shares. And it's also different to things like listed investment companies, which are closed-ended. And those that do follow the listed investment company space will know that listed investment companies have got a fair value. Everything does, you know, you know exactly how much the value of the underlying shares that are owned by that listed investment company is, but they often trade at quite significant discounts to that fair value or premiums just depending on demand and supply, which means that there's a whole component of your return which is unknown to you and which you cannot control, whereas the ETF side of things, you're simply just taking a view on the price of those assets, if that makes sense. Yep. So ETFs tend to trade quite close to their net asset value. Where exactly are these underlying assets actually being held? Yep, it's an important one. So we buy, you know, the assets, let's say using my Australian shares example, we hold them in a separate account. It's called a custodial account on behalf of those investors. So it's it's in a essentially a bank account, those assets. But what it means, it's separate and it's for the benefit of unit holders, which means that there's a separation between the assets of, for example, beta shares or the ETF fund manager 
and the assets of you know the fund itself. So that would mean if anything was ever to happen to the fund manager, those assets are still there for the benefit of the unit holders. So that holds essentially in trust accounts. And so on the uh, individual ETF um, uh, website pages that you've got, you separate out some of the terms. Can you explain what's meant by the issuer, the investment manager, you just touched on custodian, and then there's also the fund administrator as well? Yes, of course. Well, the issuer is the is the group that that issues the ETF. So it's it's the one who it's the the group that is ultimately the person responsible for putting out that ETF. And in our case, it'll be beta shares. The fund manager is also beta shares. In this case, we are the ones um, running the fund. We're managing the money. It doesn't necessarily need to be the case. Sometimes the fund manager could be somebody else to the one that's actually issuing the fund. That's a bit technical, but but ultimately that's what a fund manager means. Um, the custodian is the is the is the entity that is holding those assets on behalf of the union holders. We use a very large um, Canadian uh, bank uh, called RBC Investor Services for that. It's one of the largest in the world, and and the administrator is the one that is checking on things like the daily prices, making sure that there is a a, a net asset value price there every day, and administering the funds more generally. And finally, um, you didn't mention it, but there's also the registry. The unit registry, which is much the same as a share, it would be either computer share or link. We use link in in, in the beta shares case, and that is the group that is associated with uh, making changes to your accounts, such as um, deciding to invest in a div- dividend reinvestment plan or changing your address and that type of stuff. So those are the various players in the ETF ecosystem. Yeah, I think that's an important thing that a lot of uh, people don't realize that once you've actually bought the ETFs, you've got to go to your uh, to the register and view it was a link to register it and be able to say that this is my bank account if I want to take the uh, dividends or I want to invest in the dividend reinvestment program because otherwise they are being taxed, I think, at the uh, yeah, like yeah. A very high tax rate instead. You're right. You need to do that. And it's also really important to try to give your email address because then you'll be able to get uh, communication from the fund manager as and when it's required. So yeah, you can easily, as soon as you've bought the ETF, um, two days afterwards, you, you, you will get a you will get a letter. But even if you don't, you can just go to link, you know, type in what's known as your HIN holder identifier number, and that will basically get you set up with you know with your account. And so we talked about open ended um, nature of the ETS before. So how are the units actually created if there is significant public interest in purchasing that ETF? Yep, and so that's why it's really important that they are open ended. So. What people may not understand is that we, as the as beta shares or the fund manager, we end up doing our trading with large institutions, usually at the end of the trading day. And so what they do is they hold an inventory, essentially, of our, of our ETF units. And when they are running out, which is when demand is higher than supply, and so how would that happen? So as I said, we are trading with those large institutions. We call that the primary market. What everyone else is trading is the secondary market. So that's people investing on Comsec and um, trading between themselves. Uh, they will be buying and selling and creating demand and supply. When there is more demand than there is supply, those large institutions will instruct us to create new units. Now, what does create new units mean? Basically, they will say to us, okay, we need a certain amount of units and they they buy in minimum parcel size. So unlike Unlike us, who only need to invest five hundred dollars, we we make those minimums a bit higher. Those are usually in the millions of dollars, and they they will provide us that capital. We will use that capital to buy the underlying shares or exposures, and then we will give to that institution the ETF units, hundred thousand, two hundred thousand, and they will basically then offer those up to individual investors 
throughout the trading day. So when you're buying an ETF, you're either buying from another investor in the ETF directly or you're buying from one of those institutions known as the market makers. And those market makers are the ones who are offering those units. And that's the reason why even on day one, there will be some units on issue ready to be bought and sold because the market makers are there for that reason. And so who are these market makers? Are they uh, people that you've selected as the uh, issuer of the ETFs or is that something that is given to you by another entity? No, it is selected by us and they are specialist trading firms whose job it is is to make markets in things like ETFs. And how do they make money? They make tiny little amounts of money on every trade. We call that the spread, the bid and the ask spread. So they, what that means is they actually don't care what direction is being traded selling or buying they just want volume and so they are in there so it's companies such as deutsche bank are a big player in australia another group called susquehanna is a big player in australia sort of specialist trading firms who do this for a living Mm. and so when you create a new etf of which i think you launched one just uh, last week as well the gov one Mm. uh, what are the things that you take into consideration when you're about to take uh, to create one and then uh, launch it it's actually a very detailed process and you know, we've, we've done 62 with more funds than anybody else in Australia. So we, we take in a lot of multi, a, a really multiple sources of information in, in making these sort of decisions. We look at, for example, the overseas landscape, see what's going on there. We ask investors directly what they're looking for and, and, and listen to what they're telling us. We've got a sales team that is out there talking to financial advisors and institutions who have a whole lot of uh, – points to make about potential products. We even look at the unlisted fund space to see what's out there. So those are the first things. Uh, we just take do a whole lot of research to work out what's out there. And, of course, we look at the competitive environment as well. But when we actually set out to create it, one of the things that we really um, that really is critical is liquidity because they're called ETFs. So there's a T. The T is the, is the tradable part, right? So if liquidity is not possible, if you can't buy and sell these underlying securities, we can't create an ETF. And we want to make sure that everything that we're putting onto the market is highly liquid so that people will always be able to buy and sell whenever they want. So that's at the center of the effort. And of course, importantly, we may want to make sure there's going to be sufficient demand. We do our best to work out you know, whether there's going to be demand for this particular theme. Um, we also want to make sure that it's not a fad. We want to make sure that this is something that has a long-term secular idea behind it. So, for example, we created the cybersecurity ETF because we believe that cybersecurity is one of those long-term secular thematics, not a flash in the pan. So something that's not a fad. And then finally, it's really important that it's true to label. So it needs to really be able to if you're buying an exposure that's called the BetaShares Cybersecurity ETF, you need to make sure that what you're giving people is exposure to the cybersecurity industry. So not just in name alone, the actual the actual thing that you say the fund is is doing should be should be. In other words, you want to make sure that it does what it says on the tin. And true to label is a very important part of our thinking as well. And so when you have the idea from the ETF and you say, okay, yep, we think there's demand it's, and it's got longevity, how do you fund that ETF to then make it exchange tradable? Yeah, so that comes back to what I was saying before. I mentioned before we trade directly with these professional institutions or market makers. So when a fund is launched, they will essentially seed the fund, usually with a pretty modest amount of money, a couple of million, which in the world of ETFs is quite modest. And so basically they will provide us with that money up front. They will say, okay, we are providing you with this money in order to um, 
receive and return some number of units in that ETF. And that means that on day one, there will be inventory of units there to be bought and sold by end investors. Okay. I love some of the names uh, of the, the ticker symbols, like you've got hack, bear, fuel, food. How do you come up with the names? Do you just get everyone around and have a few beers and see who can come up with the most creative uh, four-ticker title? Basically, yes. It's it's a very, very important part. It's memorable. It has to be memorable. You'd be amazed how long, or maybe you wouldn't be amazed how long we spent agonizing over these tickers, as we call them, or codes. Uh, we want to try and find something that will immediately tell people what it is, is memorable, and it can be said easily. And, you know, when you've got 62, uh, you start running out of ideas. So we're always doing our best. And I think we do have some some pretty good ones there in the mix. So, um, yeah, we're, we're quite quite happy with the ones we've chosen. But it's a big, lengthy process involving multiple people. Just want to talk about some of your popular and uh, the alternative ETFs that you have. Um, in May 2018, you released the A200 with a management fee of just 0.07%, which was and I think still is the lowest Australian ETF uh, fee. And currently, you've got uh, over $660 million, I think, in assets when I had a look the other day. Why do you think there was such a strong positive response from investors with A200? Well, the price is obviously very, very low. It's it's the lowest globally, as you said, the lowest Australian shares ETF in the world. So 0.07% per year is $0.70 cents a year for every $1,000 you invest. It's really very, very little or $7 for every $10,000 you invest a year. So, But for us, price is all about value for money. So something like the Australian shares space with this A200 fund really was very simple and very easy to create for us. And there were already some pretty large competitors. And so really the only way we were able to innovate in that was to bring out a very, very low fee. Now, when we started the business, we would not be able to do that. You know, this was already, um, you know, some, you know, some eight years into our journey. When we started it, we wouldn't have been able to do that. We didn't have the scale. We didn't have the buying power. We didn't have the reputation to launch a fund like that. But as the business had grown and our contacts had grown and our buying power had grown, we felt pretty confident we would be able to launch a fund with a leading price and also that it will remain a leading price. So I think why was there such a strong response? I mean, it's a great core investment for many investors. You know, it trades on very, very tight bid offer spreads. I mentioned before, that's the difference between the, you know, the, 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 the net asset value or the middle price and what you're buying it for. And it's the lowest cost. And I think just many investors are using it as a core of their portfolio. And it's not only individuals, it's also being used by advisors as well and even institutional investors. So um, it, it really did, I think, it was a good, it was a good, it was a really good breakthrough for us and a milestone for us to be able to bring something out like that as an Australian player. As an Australian player bringing out the lowest cost Australian fund, it makes sense and we feel, we feel that we've managed to give people what they're looking for in that fund. Yeah, a lot of people have been really happy with it, obviously with the low fees and being Australian, then they've got the, um, uh, the franking credits as well. What are some of the other popular Australian share ETFs that uh, you have? Well, people generally like to invest in what they know and use. So um, first of all, the NASDAQ fund is, you know, is, is a very, very popular fund. Uh, that is a fund that owns the largest 100 stocks on the NASDAQ stock exchange and quite literally owns all the big giants. So it owns Apple, it owns Microsoft, Facebook, Google, Amazon, you know, the list goes on. Um, it's been an incredible performer, uh, particularly during the recent correction. And people just know 
that if they're using the, or at least they, they think that if they're going to be continuing to use these companies' products and services, there's a good chance that they'll do pretty well from a performance perspective. So NDQ is a very, very popular fund, which, as I've mentioned, is the NASDAQ 100. Um, you know, we have also done something interesting on the Australian technology space, which is called ATEC. It's an Australian technology sector. So the Australian technology space is, 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 is far, far smaller than the one we spoke about with the NASDAQ, but it's really exciting. And, you know, there's some businesses out there that are really carving out tremendous global growth opportunities, you know, such as Afterpay, which has just hit a record high the other day, Zero, sort of incredible cloud-based accounting software. And then you've also got the local giants um, in the technology space, such as realestate.com.au, REA, and carsales.com. So for many people, that is also a very interesting exposure that, that's been recently launched. And then I suppose, you know, in terms of Australian shares other than Australian 200 exposure, we've got one called X20, EX20. Um, that is a fund that invests in the largest 200 stocks but excludes the top 20. So in fact, they're investing in 180 stocks. And the reason why that's useful is that many people have already got exposure to the banks and to the, um, the likes of BHP and CSL. So once you remove the 20, you've got a series of companies that are no, not the blue chips, so they've still got room to grow, but they're also not startups. So they're dynamic, but they're, they're sort of in that sweet spot of being able to, you know, is, is be, of being able to be amenable to further growth, but also not a startup. And so A2 Milk, A2 Milk would be a, a top performer in that. So those are some. And then we've got you know a, a range of funds that go deeper into the technology sector as well. I mentioned Nasdaq. It is you know the performance of that fund you know has has been nothing short of astounding, which is probably why I'm focusing on it. I think I checked the other day over the last ten years, it's it's returned twenty one percent a year, and mm-hmm. um, you know over the over the last you know essentially over the period in this virus process, so the last three months we're, we're recording this you know in the middle of May, so at the end of April, I think it's outperformed the broader global share market by around about 12%. So it's been incredibly resilient. Um, I mentioned cybersecurity though, and that so we did bring out a number of other technology-focused funds. Cybersecurity is another very interesting fund where people are f- believing that cybersecurity as a theme will not go anywhere. It's, it's going to be you know a growing theme, cybersecurity more and more important, particularly as we work from home and our data gets exposed. So that inv- that invests in the global cybersecurity players, some large large names like Symantec, but also smaller players that many wouldn't have heard about. And that's again been a very very positive performer. I think that's done about fifteen percent a year since it's since it was launched, and in the year so far, two thousand twenty has done about ten percent. And then um, we also are getting a lot of interest in a fund called Asia, and that invests in the fifty largest technology companies in Asia outside of Japan. So really largely is Taiwan or China, you know, Taiwan and South Korea. And that invests in some of those global giants that many of us will, will be starting to hear about more and more, like Tencent and Alibaba and JD.com. So, you know, this is really going after that consumer, the consumer in China and the consumer in Asia. And again, it's 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 been a you know it's been a very good uh, performer. I think it's done about 18% a year since it launched. So those are some of yeah. the ones that we get we hear about quite a bit. 
yeah, I think the technology space is really popular, especially with the, the younger generation as well, because they understand it because they're using it, like you said. But I think oh, I've held NDQ for a couple of years, and it's you know at one point it was the only uh, the black in a sea of red <laughs> a couple of months ago. Um, and so I think it, it's great in that it gives you that exposure to things like Microsoft, Apple, Amazon, Facebook, Google, Google Alphabet, which you know in Australia you'd have to have an international account or you know stake is around these days, but it it's quite annoying just having to do that with all the paperwork for the, um, the foreign investment forms as well. Absolutely. And that brings us to the end of the first half of my interview with Ilan. In episode 19b, we'll discuss ESG funds, inverse and short funds, and then get Ilan to critique some of the ETF ideas donated by listeners. <laughs> 